Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. The Slate Culture Gap Fest is brought to you by Open Account, a podcast series created by Suchin Pak and Umqua Bank. Open Account explores through honest and sometimes comical interviews our uncomfortable silence around money. Open Account is available now on iTunes. And by Beechnut Organics. At Beechnut, homemade is their inspiration. It's not baby food. It's real food for babies. Real organic fruits and vegetables and nothing more. Nobody else makes food for babies this way. Beechnut Organics are now available at Target. The following podcast contains explicit language. I'm Stephen Metcalf, and this is the Slate Culture Gap Fest Sugar and Spice and Blood edition. It's Wednesday, September 30th, 2015. On today's show, How to Get Away with Murder is an ABC network television legal drama. We're joined by fan and champion of the show, Willa Paskin, who, of course, is also Slate's television critic, to discuss its merits. And then Stop the Press's Lion Lies Down with Lamb, Dogs and Cats Living Together. You pick your hyperbolic metaphor for Ryan Adams covering Taylor Swift's album, 1989. We're joined by T Magazine contributor and very close friend of the program, Jody Rosen, to discuss in a no doubt civil manner. And finally, we marshal all the remaining intellectual energy to discuss the return of pumpkin spice lattes. This with Dan Pashman, the wonderful ex-producer of this show and now host of the Sporkful podcast. Joining me today is Slate's editor, Julia Turner. Hello, Julia. Hi, Steve. And of course, Dana Stevens. Hey, Dana. Hey, Mr. Metcalf. How did we like Chicago? Wonderful town. Oh, it was so fun. I missed it. I want to stay longer. All right. Well, I, you know, my takeaway from Chicago is it's, you know, the great intellectual uh, uh, chalice of free market ideas. And sometimes the, you have to let the people speak. And the people have spoken. I think two thirds of the questions we got from the live crowd involved Ryan Adams and Taylor Swift. So, Julia, we made a vow, but we're breaking it. Yeah, I think I made a promise that we would not talk about Taylor Swift on this show for six months or through the end of the year or for some unspecified period of time that is longer than until now. Uh, (laughs) But you guys seem really interested in hearing us talk about this album, so we're going to do it anyway. Sorry, any of you who... um, we're planning to hold me to that pledge. That's what the fast forward button is for. Yeah, maybe we'll put a fast mm. forward on that segment. So in, if you want to live in an, an un-T-Swift world, you can. I think it has less to do with hearing us talk about um, Taylor Swift than it does with having my entire existence rebuked. Um, <laughs> but <laughs> batter up. Okay. <laughs> Moving on, How to Get Away with Murder is an ABC network television legal drama. It stars Viola Davis as the law professor Annalise Keating. It's part serial, the podcast, and all of it with more than a little dash of Donna Tartt's The Secret History, at least as uh, as I pick out the various flavors. The, the show was created by Peter Nowak, he of the Shonda Rhimes coaching tree. Uh, more of that in a minute. But first, let's listen to a clip from the show. Nice try, player. No, I wasn't trying anything. You find your seat. You don't want to be a sitting duck when the shooter gets here. What? My God, you have no idea what you just walked into. Good morning. I don't know what terrible things you've done in your life up to this point, but clearly your comments out of balance to get assigned to my class. I'm Professor Annalise Keating, and this is Criminal Law 100, or as I prefer to call it... How to Get Away with Murder. 
Oh, my God. Always um, good when the lead of the show says the title of the show in oh, the first 90 seconds yeah. of the show. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. All right. Well, let me first introduce Willa Paskin as the um, TV critic for Slate. Willa, uh, it's always great to have you on the show, and it's wonderful to have you back. Thanks for coming in. Thanks for having me. Um, why don't we talk a little bit, uh, as I take it, you're kind of a big fan of the show. Um, why don't we talk first a little bit about its genesis uh, and what it means in the universe of Shonda Rhimes and, and, and relative to network TV, and then tell us what you like about it. How to Get Away with Murder just started its second season this week. Over the weekend, Viola Davis won an Emmy for her performance as Annalise Keating. Uh, she is probably the only reason to watch the show, but she's a very great reason to watch the show. Um, How to Get Away with Murder is very much a Shonda Rhimes production, even though it is created by somebody who is not Shonda Rhimes, but uh, the aforementioned Peter Nowak. It has basically all of the standard Shonda Rhimes themes, like a junior class of young professionals, not doctors in this case, but uh, lawyers, who are sort of in awe of this mentor figure. Um, It has also sort of a lot of the scandal flavor where there's just a huge amount of insane, high-octane antics, uh, a real casualness about murder and death. Like, scandal has sort of presupposed that anyone who tortures people or murders people or shoots down planes out of the sky could still be, like, an interesting and good person and how to get it with murder supposes sort of the same thing. Um, I think that the show is interesting because um, it's is just so melodramatic and so colorful, and it's part of uh, sort of Shonda's push to like create this whole other genre of TV that we take seriously that has like a lot of really interesting, fertile ideas in it, but is so not. It doesn't look like, or isn't really even in conversation with what we think of historically as serious content and certainly serious television. It's much more in touch with soap opera tropes, melodrama tropes, romance novel tropes, like all these sort of trashy things that they have been kind of imbued with, with a lot of ambition. Yeah, I, I've been trying to figure out how to understand the whole Shondaverse, and that's part of why I was excited to have the occasion to catch up a bit on this show and catch up on uh, Viola Davis's performance in it. Because there have always been great network soap operas. I mean, the great network soap opera is a thing that has existed for decades and people have liked to talk about. I don't know, name some of the big ones. Dynasty, Dallas, Dallas. Dynasty, uh, Moonlighting, whatever. Um, Moonlighting, no. No? Moonlighting is amazing and better than all those other okay, shows. Fine. I'll take it <laughs> I don't know enough about Moonlighting. All right. Uh, Dallas, Dynasty, etc. But this, but in this, but these shows seem to be landing differently in this particular moment of TV excitement and admiration, right? Like somehow now pulling off like a glitzy, addictive, really fun soap uh, that seems to you called them hyper dramas in in your first review, I think, of this show last year feels like more admirable because we're in a moment where we like to talk about the shows that we're all watching. And a lot of times, the sh- you know, and air quotes around we and all, because obviously these are targeted towards niche segments, but it's like everybody's watching Game of Thrones and everybody's watching True Detective and smarty pants people like to talk on the internet about, you know, David Simon's latest joint. And yet smarty pants on the internet also kind of like to talk about scandal. Not so much Grey's Anatomy, but yes, scandal and increasingly Empire, which is, I think, another network soap in the vein of uh, these shows in terms of its... Um, its drama, the diversity of its cast, the aggressiveness of its plot twists. Um, and this seems like it's in that camp. So I'm, I'm sort of like having a category fail here in my sputtering. Sure. I think also you could um, lump Ryan Murphy and his sort of oeuvre into this kind of new nighttime soap opera that we're sort of taking seriously. I think that it is not just that TV is sort of entered the, it sort of uh, has a place in the cultural conversation now where we just take kind of anything that's done well more seriously than they would in the past. I think what's a little bit different about these shows, um, although certainly they're benefiting from the seriousness with which we are taking television in general, is that they, like I said, are actually ambitious in a new way. So Dynasty and Dallas and It's Ilk and Knott's Landing, all those shows, they were soap operas that wanted to entertain you. Like that was <laughs> that was their goal. And there's obviously a lot of stuff about money and oil and class. Um, but these shows... I think, actually are trying to tap into something much more heavy and real. So, namely, obviously, race is, like, the the obvious 
the obvious way that these shows are sort of different than their predecessors, I think is also the register in which they're being taken really seriously, both um, as shows that are showing that there's this huge black audience that had been so underserved and is basically the only people who are making hit sh- like shows hits on television anymore, but also that they're the only shows sort of talking about these questions of race. So Grey's Anatomy, which was Shonda's first show, was really race-blind in its first couple of years. It had this extremely diverse cast. It was cast sort of without caring what color anybody was, but they never talked about it. It was like as if that was sort of immaterial. And with Scandal, she sort of basically the show about a black woman having an affair with the white president of the United States, she sort of made this move for race to be like the front and center theme of a lot of um, of her shows. And I think that race is, again, a huge component of how to get it with murder, not just because the cast is racially diverse, but because Annalise is so explicitly a black woman. And similarly with Empire, it's so explicitly about a black family. And, and, there aren't actually a lot of other shows. I mean, David Simon is obviously dealing with race in this sort of, in a both a, a genre and entertaining way, but also sort of a, a highbrow, pointy nose way. But he, but they, these shows are dealing with it in just like a purely, um, not just a purely entertaining way, but there is a thoughtfulness and an authenticity actually about um, racial dynamics that that a lot of other shows on, certainly on network television, don't have. And about queer dynamics and, and yeah. gay relationships as well in ways that I won't spoil, but there's a major gay character who's one of the law students who's, you know, brought in to, to help her out with her various right. nefarious dealings. And uh, and there's a, there's a gay love story on his side. There's another one that just came up in the first episode of the second season. So that's also handled in, I think, an unusually matter-of-fact way for network. Totally. There is, you know, it's, it's similar in this way to Empire, which is that... Um, Empire does all these politically incorrect things all of the time because it is written by black people, not only black people, but black people for black actors. And so it doesn't feel like it has to be pious or like politically correct or make sure that everything is totally appropriate. There's a sort of freedom there. And I think that How to Get It With Murder sometimes has that that same kind of expansiveness, even more about its gay characters than its black ones, because, I mean, Peter Nowak is a gay man and there's some that character, Connor, has been... At the beginning, he he's basically he's sort of like a jerk, you know, who's had this kind of like he's come he's sort of turned into a better he's, guy. He's like a negative gay stereotype. Exactly. He's like a, he's a sinister gay player and manipulator. Like that, if if the person who created that was a straight person and he was the pure villain of the show, right. like he would be like. And but I, I get the impression on comment sections that he's enormously popular with, with viewers, gay or no. People love Connor and they want him to be meaner than he is right now. <laughs> they want him to get bad again well, like he used to be. Well, I think that that's actually one of the things when you think about how people actually watch soap operas and enjoy them versus like thinking about them, which is you kind of want people to be their most ridiculous, heightened, catty self. And it's only if you're sort of running it through like an appropriateness meter that you would be like that's a negative portrayal. You know, there's something so fun about those larger-than-life characters that just do whatever they want. But can I say something about the side characters on this show? I mean, I just read some interview with Viola Davis where she was saying, I think the metaphor she used, which was great, is that most of the roles she gets offered are fried chicken and not filet mignon, but she'll still sink her teeth into the fried chicken. And seeing the show, I think this role is kind of fried chicken. I mean, God love her for winning the Emmy. She's a great actress, but I think she's kind of wasted on this show. It's not good drama. None of the other characters matter to me at all. And that whole flock of young students that she's conscripted to help with her her legal cases, there's just there's a basic logic flaw in the show where it's like if she was really this crack defense attorney, she wouldn't hire these no but no nothings. I actually think the show is not particularly good. I think it's pretty interesting. Um, I sort of enjoy watching it, but uh, not when I'm like using all my higher faculties to be like, is this really great? I think I think what is um Basically, when it first came out, I think I gave it actually a pretty negative review as being just sort of like the Shonda copycat. I became really impressed over the first season with just how ballsy and like, it, like insane it kind of was, like how much it was cutting back and forth. And there's this one particular scene, I think it's in the fourth episode, um, where this dead girl, basically uh, Viola Davis's character's husband's penis shows up on a dead girl's (laughs) cell phone and she basically is sitting in front of a mirror and she has her, she's no makeup on, her wig is off. It's so, it's like a, it's just you've never seen anything like it on television. Honestly, it's like a very striking like um, Sunset Boulevard or like Streetcar Named Desire theatrical moment and she's like, what is your penis doing on a dead girl's phone? And it's just... It's so silly, right? But it was so it was such a striking sequence, such a striking image and and just a, something that was totally new. And and like just new basically because of 
Viola Davis's like physicality and her gravitas. Um, and that made me think like and, the sh- and you see her stripped down. It's not yeah. just that she doesn't have her makeup on or her wig on. It's that you see her take them off and you see right. the transformation from the public self totally to the like private self. The procedural murders each week crack me up because along with yeah. all the in, you know the dramas and between the various law students and Viola and her husband is is this murder story every single week it's different and the, the show almost seems bored by that story 100%. like just hurry wrap it up solve it they should almost just cut that procedural element out of the well, show well I did think that they had made a change in the beginning of season two I don't know if you noticed but the procedural element of the first episode looked like it was going to be part of the whole season long arc which would be like a better move than these sort of like really gruesome cases they get and dis- like they feel disposable and they like magically solve every time yeah Steve you've been silent what did you think of this show? Lay the hammer down. <laughs> a no hammer at all. It slid right off of me. Some mm-hmm. things turn me into Teflon. I try and they just don't stick at all. And this is one of them. I mean, for me, I mean, this is just going to whatever. I mean, I think this is to the practice of law what Grey's Anatomy was to the practice of medicine. I mean, it's just so far from the actual reality that you don't feel like you're peeping into a real world. And once that isn't happening, um, I, I just can't stick with it very long. So. Yes, realism is not the show's strong suit. I mean, I will say I'm going to keep watching it, like Teflon or no. <laughs> I I watch Scandal. It's my like uh, it's my my solo enjoyable watch, and I will add this to my roster. You're extending your Thursday Shonda block for one more hour. I just I like to have a soapy procedural in my docket for when my husband's out of town. I I really think you should watch Empire then, but I also think <laughs> fair enough. But I also think that. Um, these shows both Scandal and How to Get Away with Murder How to Get Away with Murder are Hatagawam yeah exactly I basically (laughs) said that even trying to say the name Uh, both of them clearly are like not served well by the network model of basically having to make five or seven seasons and both of these shows Scandal is like actually getting gray at this point Um, How to Get Away with Murder is now like launching this whole other mystery if they were just like we're 26 episodes that's it like we're going to be completely balls out this whole time. Enjoy. It would be much better than this thing where they're just going to have to like keep going on. And, and it on. would allow Viola Davis some time to look for some better roles. <laughs> All right. Well, if nothing else, we got Willa Paskin to say balls out. Willa, thank you so much for coming on the show. The show we talked about is How to Get Away with Murder. If you love it or hate it, come and tell us at facebook.com slash culturefest. Willa, thanks a lot. Thank you. All right. Well, now is the moment in our podcast where we talk about our sponsor, Julia Turner. What do we have? Money is one of the last great taboos, something we all need but rarely dare to discuss until now. Open Account, a series of interviews created by Sujin Pak and Umpqua Bank, explores our collective uncomfortable silence around money. Honest, emotional, and sometimes comical, Open Account goes deep into the most rewarding, challenging, and paradoxical aspects of the number one leading stressor in America, money. Open Account is available now on iTunes. All right, Steve, I believe it is time to let Jody Rosen enter the ring. Jody Rosen, before we jump in, will you promise me one thing? Yes, Steve, anything. No matter what, after this segment, I'm still your winding wheel. <laughs> that was a laugh. <laughs> <laughs> That's what that was. <laughs> oh, bottoms up, pumpkin spice latte. All right. To traffic for a moment in cliche, after which we'll return, I promise, to our usual high standards of reason dialectic. The alt-country singer-songwriter Ryan Adams has become, over the years, the quintessential white dude with a guitar. He's a gifted low-to-medium-fi balladeer with a way of connecting his deep feelings with a winsome melody. And then there's Taylor Swift, the pop star who it sometimes feels is shrink-wrapping the entire Earth in her own star power, the better to sell the whole thing off to space aliens. Well, (laughs) Orion Adams has done a song-by-song cover of Taylor Swift's 1989. Is this a pomo prank, an homage? Is it proof of something about her songwriting or about his gifts as a performer or both? To help us negotiate these thorny issues, we've invited chief pop Stalinist Jody Rosen (laughs) onto the show. Before we take another step further, I should say Jody is the critic at large for T, the style magazine of the New York Times. Jody, before we get to the utter silliness, let's maybe pick a cut from the album and listen to it, maybe side by side with its uh, evil twin. Well, why don't we listen to Shake It Off? I stay up too late, nothing in my brain, that's what people say, that's what people say. I go on too many dates <laughs> But I can't make them stay At least that's what people say Mm-mm. That's what people say Mm-mm. But I 
picked I Want Jody because I feel like my response to this album, I'll just kick it off before we get brawling, uh, is that I mostly didn't like the Ryan Adams covers very much because they seemed sort of humorless. And I think one of Taylor Swift's strengths is that she's funny. But I did enjoy his covers of the songs of hers I liked least. And I'd say the two songs I like least on her album or Shake It Off and Bad Blood, and I enjoyed his covers of those songs. I think cause maybe because I was just less attached to the original. And I'm, I'm curious what, what the rest of you guys make of the whole project. Yeah, I guess I sort of felt the same way about those two songs. Um, those are probably my my least favorite songs on, on Taylor Swift's 1989, especially Bad Br- Blood. I thought the production of that of the original is so fussy, you kind of can't hear the song, so I'm grateful to Ryan Adams for kind of exhuming the, the melody beneath the clamor of the original production but um you know as far as the 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 project as a whole i think the important thing to do is dismiss out of hand right away um the suggestion that this is some some cheeky irreverent or um snide gesture at all it's definitely not a send-up or or whatever what i forget the what the language was that steve used in the intro but you know um, Ryan Adams is voluminously on record as a, a loving and adoring Taylor Swift as a songwriter in particular. They um, collaborated. Um, they had a session doing the, some songwriting together on Taylor Swift's Red album. The result of that session never made it to record, but they're mutual admirers. Um, and so, if anything, this was, you know, in his very earnest way, this was this was another Ryan Adams album. This is one of what I think is 15th solo record. He's very prolific. And this was, uh, I think, a record that sounds, um, you know, like a Ryan Adams album. And I think that, um, you know, so th- the, one th- the one thing we can say for sure is he meant he means it. Um, and I think you hear it in that that version of Shake It Off also. And I think what's g- good about, for instance, that cover is like it's another it's another example of like beneath the um, the bright um, exuberant production of the original, which production sounds great, no problem there. There's a, there's a, another kind of song there, or another kind of mood that you can that you can extract from the song. I think that speaks to the the underlying sturdiness of the composition. I think that is especially true mm-hmm. in what I think is the strongest song on both her album and his cover version, which is Blank Space. That really, really works in both versions. And I think it's just because it's a solid song that has a lot of possible interpretations. All right, Steve, but you you are the the anvil waiting to drop. I mean, we had a gigantic contretemps about Taylor and her talents, et cetera, a couple months ago on the show when the album first came out. Uh, I believe you are a longtime fan of Ryan Adams. Maybe I just am assuming that. Is it fair to call you a longtime fan of Ryan Adams? Uh, I have uh, I have uh, admiration for Ryan Adams. I like his music. I like playing his music when I'm fucking around with an acoustic guitar. I like learning his songs because I find them. I find that they have an internal structure that uh, makes them easy to learn. They're very fun to sing. Um, I like Ryan Adams. I don't worship Ryan Adams, but I, I quite I quite admire him as a songwriter and as a performer. Okay, so what did you think? Well. I want to. I want to take a. Li- I basically. I, first of all, I totally agree with Jody that this is done in earnest. There's. There's not an ounce of snideness or, or implied rebuke to it at all. I think uh, we can take him at face value when he says that he admires her and her songwriting, um, and I'm sure there's no reason not to. What I will say is that turning her album 1989 into Nebraska, I think is just a way. Uh, it. It wasn't his intention, but I think it shows how performance and star image dependent pop music. Is. It, does, it shows more about that than it does about the intrinsic um, virtues of songs. Um, and I think that he's a really seasoned performer. He has a very highly developed, or, or almost better yet, sort of carefully deepened performance style. And he could sing the phone book and make it sound like a you know broken man's whisper. He could make it sound like a Ryan Adams song. So in that sense, like I, what's interesting to me about the record is it seems like people are relatively pleased by the idea of it. Um, relatively indifferent to the final result, but then piling huge groaning um, uh, heavy arguments on top of it. And I think the point being the point that one can extract from it is rather small, which is that, you know, um, pop musicians for a long time now have been both singers and songwriters uh, by and large. They've been both star personas and uh, craftspeople and everyone is a mix of all of these things and you can take almost any artist covering almost any other artist and come up with this new interesting third thing you know end of story I mean I, we were hoping this would be a cat fight but I don't know that we're going to get one 
I want to remind everyone, by the way, that about seven years ago on the GabFest, Steve said that five years ago, five years hence, we would never talk about Taylor Swift again. So I won that bet already. <laughs> but anyway, I'm also going to win the Beyonce bet. And Steve will He's going to have all. to buy you a car an in automobile. Paris. Yeah, yeah, a car. A car in Paris. Wait, gonna, I forgot about this. He's gonna you weren't there when that promise was made, that was but made I was. at three in the morning over... God knows what. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, what is it? can we get the bet on record? What is the bet? Steve said that in 20 years, if Beyonce was still a going concern or anyone ever thought about her, he would deliver a new automobile to me in Paris, France. <laughs> okay. All right. So I look forward to that. We got about 13 years ago. But, uh, you know, Steve, you said that, you know, most performers are singer-songwriters. And the fact is that's not true. Actually, that's an aberration historically in pop music. Most performers aren't singer-songwriters. Historically, even over the last 20 years, that was kind of, you know, the singer-songwriter arose in the late 60s, kind of held sway through the 70s. But if you look at black music, if you look at um, music with female performers, there are many great female singer-songwriters, but not all of them are. Not Certainly not all male <laughs> performers are singer-songwriters. So in that sense, a lot of these uh, arguments about authenticity, what's real music, what's fake music, they're ahistorical because there's a certain paradigm or model of what a real, what a real music, pop musician is or a legitimate musician, and, that, and Ryan Adams fits that bill. And Taylor Swift, for reasons that completely befuddle me ha- is often pushed out of that which is weird because she actually conforms to that model she is a classic singer songwriter she does collaborate often on songs as occasionally does ryan adams but i think a lot of the questions that have swirled around this album take place against the backdrop of those larger arguments about what what is real music and and what isn't yeah, Jody. it seems like the music critic press is trying to spin this this choice of Ryan Adams to cover this album, which to me, the only thing strange about it is how soon it is. <laughs> you know, it's a little bit weird to cover an album while it's still on the charts, but, you know, I guess he's riding her coattails. But it's sort of being spun as this gendered um, battle or that he's mansplaining her own music to her or, you know, the idea that she's being lent legitimacy in the music press by getting covered by Ryan Adams. As our own Forrest Wickman pointed out on Slate, Pitchfork has never reviewed a Taylor Swift album, but they immediately jumped on this record, right? So there's a sense that he's more valued because he's a man and because he represents some sort of singer-songwriter tradition. That, to me, seems a little bit extrinsic to the actual dialogue that's taking place between the two albums, and it doesn't feel at all like a condescending mansplanation to me. Yeah, I mean, I actually, the most incisive thing that I read in the music critic press about this was by Ann Powers of NPR, and her argument was, well, first of all, she actually broke down what I thought was a really useful lineage of the kind of cover song by indie artists of pop songs. Um, and so she, she sort of traced it back to the 80s. She brought in the example of Sonic Youth covering Madonna. Um, and that was kind of a transgressive move at the time. You know, it was, it was verboten for Sonic Youth to cover Madonna, for uh, the replacements to cover Kiss, right? But now, um, Ann Powers points out, you know, uh, we've got a sort of a, a flattened out um, music uh, landscape and indie artists, pop artists are covering each other's songs all the time as a kind of branding move. So this maybe falls into that category. It's nothing It's nothing surprising to find anyone covering a song or even covering an entire record. It actually happens more frequently now than it ever has before. Um, the one thing that I think Ann Powers says it's really shrewd is um, she points out that Ryan Adams, you know, Taylor Swift actually is a very, if you will, gendered artist. She writes, her songs really have, even the ones that she collaborates with, on with um, with Max Martin, great Swedish pop songwriter and other, other big songwriters, they really feel like Taylor Swift songs, lyrically and less so melodically, but also she has, she has a certain Swifty and je ne sais quoi, but in the lyrics, you know, it's it's the it's the viewpoint of a young woman, very strongly expressed in in language that really feels um, certainly don't want to use the word authentic, but it you know it's it's like it it it's got the touch of it, an individual sensibility and, and confessional can, songs, yeah, right? and you can and you can hear her you can hear her voice in it, and what Powers says is Ryan Adams isn't masculinizing these songs, he's he's really entering into Taylor Swift's head and world. He's singing a Taylor Swift song. He's not Ryan Adams, you know, mm-hmm. turning a t- turning a Taylor Swift song into some kind of, um, you know, guy rock. Although he does sometimes have to slightly tweak the gender of the song so that he's not actually in drag. I was waiting to see whether he would sing in whatever song this is, Wildest Dreams, whether he would sing, Say You'll Remember Me, Standing in a Nice Dress, Staring at the Sunset. And he does something with that lyric where, you know, it's the girl remembering him who's wearing the dress and that's, not Ryan himself. That's too bad. But Jody, correct me if I'm wrong. It's not so much that 
it's it's yes, it becomes a gendered argument, but it begins as a category argument, which is, you know, these songs, according to one way of looking at it, these songs didn't really have much intrinsic depth or feel depth of feeling to them until Ryan Adams covered them. And from one angle, the category error there is no, in fact, they did. She's a much better songwriter than people give her credit for. She is, in fact, a singer-songwriter and not a pop star. She's much more like James Taylor, after whom she's named, than Britney Spears, whom she's replaced. Um, and then looked at from the other angle, you know, regardless of who gets the songwriting credit, the songs are overproduced, treacly, melodic, and simplistic. And it was only Ryan Adams covering them that actually imbued them with a depth that they lacked. This is a category argument about about whether Taylor Swift is a um, serious artist or a pop star or a kind of somewhat disposable but beautifully marketed pop star. Um, and I think that's where the hair starts to rise on the back of various people's uh, necks. Who are these people, Steve? <laughs> Who <laughs> you so objectively I, I like this clinical uh, this clinical evaluation of some people's views of Taylor Swift. But one thing I, I, that I think is worth listening to, there was another kind of stunt in the middle of this uh, that accompanied this Ryan Adams album release, which is that Father John Misty, the indie singer-songwriter who goes by the name Father John Misty, whose real name is something Tillman. Someone help me out. Joshua, Jonathan, Jay Tillman. Jay Tillman. That's right. Jay Tillman. <laughs> Um, but anyway, he did this great thing where he drops covers of a couple of Taylor Swift songs, Welcome to New York and Blank Space, in the style of Velvet, of the Velvet Underground. Basically, he did a, a kind of like <laughs> a, a Lou Reed impression. He really reveals, for instance, in the Blank Space on how good Taylor Swift's lyrics are. And so maybe we can hear a little bit of that. Yeah, let's listen to that. Nice to meet you. Where you been? I could show you incredible things Magic madness, heaven sin Saw you then, I thought, oh my god, look at that face You could be my next mistake Love's a game, wanna play New money, suit and tie I can read you like a magazine Ain't it funny how rumors fly And I know you heard about me So let's be friends I'm dying to see how this one ends So can I just say These, <laughs> these covers seem more ironic And I like them much better mm-hmm. Yeah yeah. Well, but who, also, are, who are they making fun of I guess is the question, right? Yeah, I, I mean it could be as much the Velvet Underground But Jody, that's, what, that's the two sides of the coin Like What's going to seem like more of an anachronism, the affectations of indie rock, which are going to turn out to have carried a lot of the music that was intrinsically banal with it, or the overproduction and overmarketing of a, of a pop icon, which, you know, also carried along often, not maybe not in this case, but in many cases, banal music along with it as well. We don't know. Yeah, I have to give you, it's just, give it well, 10 years. Well, you keep wanting to make some grand argument about the fact that, that quote, overproduced, which I don't even know what that means. Where does the line oh, between produced and overproduced uh, stop? But, but anyway. Uh, wait, that, 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 I mean, where does the line between anything, I mean, where does one thing become a surfeit? I mean, these are, these are like all aesthetic car- categories. They're, they're, they're based in nothing but taste. Overproduced means exactly whatever, whatever original impulse to human feeling gave rise to the work of art in the first place, you yourself said at the beginning of this show, one of your favorite cuts from the album was over-fucking-produced. I said it was that, fussily produced. I didn't okay, like the... Okay, well, I didn't fussily like, produced is a fucking here, synonym here we for go. overproduced. No, no, no. I, it wasn't over... I didn't like the particular production choices that were made on oh, that song. Oh, God. No, it's heaven. true. <laughs> you got caught in a contradiction. It is possible to do too much in the studio to a song to the point where so wait, wait. Becomes... So, so, no, no, no. So, but listen, listen, examine what you're saying, Steve. You're saying that, that, that a song... There is, there is some... No, no. There is some... There is some platonic ideal of a song. No, the song I never exists, said that. It exists. No, I never if you said can, that. If, but the, what you're, but the, the implication <laughs> of what you're saying is that a song is a song without it, any surrounding music or ornament, right? Uh, when it, where does where does it be, where does it start a song? Hey, if if hey. some dude is playing it on an acoustic guitar, that's the that's the I pure song. And then when, no, no, because that's I, just I, not the way music is made. I, you see, that's that's just not the history hey, of music. Donald, hey, you know, Woody Donald Guthrie, Th- Woody Guthrie used machines to make his music. Oh, gee, did he? Uh, Donald Trump put Jody Rosen back on the phone. No. I'm sick of being demagogued here. This is ridiculous. <laughs> I'm the one who's admitting that there's nothing intrinsically authentic about a white dude with an acoustic guitar uh, at all. I just. 
right, personally, I, I think that there is a point at which. I mean, if you, you believe you, you're that, the one who used the word, can I speak here, please? If you believe that musical is music is actually a vehicle for emotion at some level, then um, and sometimes. <laughs> You know, grandiose production can be an enhancement of those emotions, and sometimes it can be, you know, a layer upon layer of overthinking and um, bombast over something that might have had an element of truth to it. That's all. That production can sometimes stifle what is authentic you know, authentically felt about a song. And some, and in some cases it can take a song that's intrinsically weak and blow it out into something kind of magnificent. Well, so here's where I, th- I might try and square the circle here. I, um, I had a reaction to the Ryan Adams album that was also a comment on Taylor Swift's production. And I, you know, whether or not like you're perfectly entitled to not like Taylor Swift's music, to prefer Ryan Adams' music, like, uh, you know, when we last debated this subject, what troubled me was this question of the authorship of her image, right? Like, whether or not you like what she's doing, I believe her to be very much in charge of what she is doing. And, you know, and I, too, have talked about her skills as a songwriter, and she is the co-writer of, I think, all of her songs, writer or co-writer of almost all of her songs. Yeah. Um, so so in that kind of classic model of authorship, you have her work there in the words and in the melodies and in, in how the pieces come together. But what I found listening to the Ryan Adams is that in some ways it made me like all of it a little bit less. Like it made me realize how much of the emotional satisfaction I derive from the original works has to do with emotion that's delivered through through some of those production choices and through just this like – I mean, you said je ne sais quoi, and that's, well, that's never Taylor- a good way to win an argument. But but there is this kind of vamping affect and style of delivery that's part of delivering what is, for me, a totally real emotional response. And so I found that some of the songs just felt felt flatter in Ryan Adams's version. And then I also found that I was bringing to him a set of expectations about his relationship to the songs he sings, which is that you want him to think like he's he's really yearning back to whichever starlet's heart broke he broke or broke his uh lately like his songs feel so achingly yearningly out of his own mind that to see him sort of placing himself in a different person's mind just felt less like mansplaining and more like i don't know a sad old dad or something like it just didn't i, I don't know like i found the whole thing kind of deflating well, he's I only did. 40 come on poor ryan <laughs> and he just broke up with his wife mandy moore so that's the the person he's working through right it's now. dad bod right <laughs> Can I just say two things I've been waiting to say <laughs> sometime that may not be on topic anymore? One is that that Father John Misty cover, which is so great, to me is just essentially it's a musical stunt and a musical joke about pop music itself, right? I mean, in a way, it's neither about the Velvet Underground nor about Taylor Swift. It's about the our ability to recombine and create something new. And it kind of reminds me of whoever it was that discovered that every Bob Dylan ballad can be sung to the theme of the Gilligan's Island tune, <laughs> or, or, <laughs> which once you discover that makes you hear Bob Dylan ballads in a completely different way. Or Dana, do you remember, I think you and I actually traded this over email many years ago. Do you remember Dylan Hears a Who, the Dylan-style performances of Dr. Seuss books? <laughs> no, but that's a great idea. Oh, oh my, and I know that you're a fan of Too Many Daves, which is one of my favorite. Oh, Dr. yeah, Seuss. great the, poem. The, the Dylan Hears a Who version of Too Many Daves is killer. Oh, maybe that should be but, our outro this week. Okay, so my other thing I've yeah. been waiting to say for essentially this whole conversation is that this whole kind of media reception of this Ryan Adams stunt of covering 1989 comes, and our whole conversation today kind of comes at the two artists as if they're completely on different poles. And isn't it crazy that Ryan Adams would cover a Taylor Swift album when, in fact, their their career tracks have been so similar, right? I mean, they're both alt-country, good-looking alt-country singer-songwriters who then moved into pop, who sort of had a period of being overexposed and dating celebrities and writing confessional songs about it. And that, in fact, the two of them sort of seem like musical twins in a way to me. You know, obviously different ages, different genders, but very much working the same kind of territory. Very prolific. That's the other thing I was going to say is that they're both arguably overly prolific, right? And they turn out lots of albums that have a few great songs and some other filler songs. And that seems to me to be true of both of their versions of 1989 as well. Like the moments in 1989 is bad, like Bad Blood or that horrible opener New York song, it's really bad. But, you know, the other thing I'd say, I, I, I agree with you, and uh, but, you know, they, another thing they have in common is the fact that Taylor Swift can be a really 
effective sad sack acoustic balladeer too. So when Julia says that, you know, what sells the songs in 1989 is the, the, the vampiness or the kind of pop brightness, I don't think that, I think what Ryan Adams has done or maybe shown certain people who weren't very listening, listening very hard, that this is a, there's a lot of, there are a lot of melancholy songs on this record. You know what I mean? And it's a common tactic to sing a sad song but with bright production because that gives it a there's this special frisson that goes on there right and when the music is playing against the lyric or vice versa and you know ryan adams just kind of played them more straight they're all sad sack songs when he starts singing them right but there's not a sense that he's finding the essence of the song i think i agree with julia that you know what he's doing is ryan adamsizing the song right the way that father john misty is velvet underground izing the song mm-hmm. you know he's turning it he's cranking it through a kind of ryan adams machine and some of what comes out the other end is, is pretty nice hmm. well listen i think one one interesting i mean jody point taken that it's ahistorical to say that singers have been traditionally songwriters i didn't I meant in the rock era and construed narrowly and on and on and on. But both Taylor Swift and Ryan Adams fall within that paradigm. Within that paradigm, I think the measure of a good songwriter is the portability of their music beyond the affectations of their own voice, their own typical production values, beyond their own star image. And so cover songs are this interesting way in which you begin to hear how, like what kind of a gift to the songwriting community a song has been. I do think that ultimately this is so particular to Ryan Adams and his affection for this set of songs. The case isn't proven. And there's also whether or not other singers do these songs with a degree of sincerity and respect and they become portable beyond what I think we all have to admit is a highly developed star image and marketing campaign around Taylor Swift. My suspicion is they won't. Possibly they will, but I'm completely open to um, contrary evidence. I think you have, that the song is more sacrosanct for you than it is for me. Um, You know, this is, this is a media, it's a performance medium. It's a form of theater. It's a, you know, often we hear songs on recordings. Sometimes we hear them in the, in the context of live performance, but you know, I, I, I'm a huge, I love the Great American Songbook. So I love Irving Berlin and Cole Porter and Gershwin songs that are infinitely portable. Is that, is that even the way you'd say that? I think I mixed my <laughs> metaphors there. But in any case, and I also love, you know, there's, there are certain Bob Dylan songs I do not want to hear anyone else perform because they just sound like fucking shit. And they but sound great a, when he, but, when he perform, and, and, and that I just chose Dylan because he's the, you know. Yeah, because 70,000 people have covered 70,000 of his songs proving my point, not yours. I mean, that's he's exactly the person whose affectations are, sh- you know, shoot through everything he ever wrote. And yet, and, and the, truth is, the truth is, I like one Bob Dylan cover, and that's Jimi Hendrix's All Along the Watchtower, and all the rest of them sound like dog shit to me. His to, songs to do you, not yeah. sound portable to me, and yet I love Bob Dylan. So, whatever, we could go on and on, but we should probably do something else. All right, Jody, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you, Steve. You're still my winding wheel, baby. Thank you. You're mine. All right. Now is the moment in our podcast where we talk about our other sponsor, Julia Turner. What do we have? We have a new sponsor this week, Steve, and it is a new sponsor with an exciting offer for our listeners. So I'm very excited about it. Um, Beach Nut Organics is a new kind of baby food inspired by homemade baby food. They've retooled their baby food operation over the past couple of years after noticing broader trends where more parents are making food for their kids at home, wanting more interesting flavor combinations, being more aggressive with spices, um, you know, throwing things in the blender, becoming a little bit more concerned about preservatives and uh, other potential weird fillers that might be in in baby food that you can buy off the shelf. All of those concerns exist. I had those concerns when I had young babies. And yet, it is so much easier to open a jar of food than to steam crap and put it in a blender. And I don't know, who has time? Um, And so Beach Nut is striving to make life easier for parents by making healthy, organic food with interesting flavors and more interesting textures, um, but making them still available on supermarket shelves. There are unique combinations like butternut squash, black bean, and cumin. There are quality ingredients with bold flavors and textures. And Beach Nut Organics are now available at Target. They are also available to you, our listeners. If you go to beechnutgabfest.com, you could enter to win a year's worth of Beach Nut Organics, which would kind of be a game-changing amount of baby food if you were trying to feed babies. It's worth having a baby just to take up that deal. (laughs) 
<laughs> that's that's the real that's the real lesson there. So go to beachnutgabfest.com or you can also find a link to the contest on our show page to enter to win a year's worth of Beachnut Organics baby food. I've got to say it looks delicious. It's in these beautiful little gym-like Instagrammable jars with bright bold colors. Uh, this is not baby food. It's a real food for babies. All right, Steve, what's next? Season of mists and mellow fruitfulness. Bend with apples the mossed cottage trees and fill my hot beverage cup to the winking brim with pumpkin spice latte. The PSI, the pumpkin spice latte, has awoken from its estival slumber to grace once again the empty think piece pages of Slate and The Guardian. The Washington Post has declared pumpkin spice the deeply polarizing autumnal squash. The Guardian believes pumpkin has reduced seasonality to an artificial flavor. They don't stop there. They go on to say multinational corporate food giants with their labs and food scientists pushing the flavor of quote unquote pumpkin to the absolute most extreme levels rob us of a little old thing called the actual flavor of a thing. The actual thingness of squash, its literal squashiness, is getting lost in the modern chemical soup. Double check the byline. Did I write that? Where's Will Salatin when you need him? If nothing else, such a revolting concoction as pumpkin spice latte makes a great third topic, or so says Julia Turner. No, I pin it on I you, Julia. <laughs> I, t- I said I did not want to do this show. I said pumpkin spice latte was old. I resent you calling Slate out as a pumpkin spice think piece purveyor. The closest thing to a thing piece we're doing in Pumpkin Spice is this segment, which you guys insisted on doing. So I will not have it. We were talking about this at your behest, Steve. Me thinks, me thinks she protests a little much. But anyway, um, if nothing else, we cavell with uh, happiness and pride at the presence of Dan Pashman, who produced this show masterfully for, uh, for many seasons uh, and went on to big things with The Sporkful on WNYC and on and on. Dan, welcome back to the show. Hey, guys. Great to talk to you. Dan is the right. only reason to talk about pumpkin spice latte. But all right, we well, all I appreciate agree. that. But first, let's uh, let's um, go back in time and listen to the taste test of Dana and Julia. Back when our pumpkin spices were warm, Dana, can you describe what's in your cup? <laughs> My first response was that whatever the liquid was that was just discovered on Mars, I think it's in me and Julia's cups right now. This is kind of like a chemical orange concoction. There's with- like an ugly, shiny, wrinkled scrim on top, like in the manner of cooked milk but but that's our fault for not drinking it fast enough bottoms up i feel like the whole pumpkin spice industry is very dependent on the fact that most people drink their starbucks beverages with the lids on like i feel like if anyone had to actually look at this while consuming a pumpkin spice latte they would stop all right let us close close our eyes you have to drink a closed casket as it were (laughs) exactly all right i'm gonna close my eyes and pretend it looks different cheers (laughs) I'm cringing already. (laughs) It's much less bad when you close your eyes. It's like autumn. It's autumn in a trough. (laughs) It it just tastes like a latte with a lot of cinnamon in it. Well, all Starbucks drinks kind of taste like vats of warm milk with sugar syrup of some kind. I won't hear you speak ill of vats of milk with sugar syrup, and then that's what I drink every morning. Um, I should note that we're taping on International Coffee Day, so this feels like a particular rebuke to the to the world and coffee quality this is fine this is fine this tastes fine i can drink a third of this yeah it's 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 fine but is it close bosom friend of the maturing sun (laughs) it it tastes like that someone's description of a pumpkin in poetry it's it's john keats's description of autumn dana (laughs) (laughs) same same idea same idea she got she got where you were headed this is like um no, it just tastes like spice cake. I mean, this is the this is the pat observation about pumpkin spice, the flavor. But it tastes a lot like cinnamon, a bunch like nutmeg, a bunch like brown sugar, or kind of like a mapley brown sugar flavor. And although Starbucks has added actual pumpkin to its pumpkin spice latte this year after being rebuked for having there be no pumpkin DNA present in prior iterations, I'm not getting too much. Yeah, there's not like gourd flavor. <laughs> there's not like fibrous matter floating around in there or anything. <laughs> this is a totally tolerable beverage if you don't look at it. All right, so we're back in the studio, and we should say that both Steve and Dan are recording remotely today, which is why they were not subjected to the orangey sludge. Uh, nice work, guys. Nice scheduling. Nice scheduling uh, strategos yeah, there. That was no accident. Yeah. All right. Well, <laughs> Dan and I, regular guinea pigs here, canaries in the pumpkin mine. I just want to say I'm surrounded by actual pumpkins, and uh, they prefer Ryan Adams. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, Danny Pash, the reason we wanted to have you on this segment, among 
many other reasons is because I think you're really good on seasonal foods. You've had you've come in on Thanksgiving before and what a Thanksgiving dinner should be. And I know you like to have sporkful specials on, on different seasonal ingredients. So what do you think of the faux seasonality of the corporate introduction of pumpkin spice earlier and earlier, I should note, every year, just like Christmas, right? The marketing starts a little bit earlier into summer so that you're walking around on hot, sweaty day, looking at disgusting feet and flip-flops all over the city. <laughs> and, and what do you see before you but a big billboard advertising some autumnal spiced coffee that's so unappetizing? Right. Yeah. No, it, it's totally true. I, I think that last year was the first year that Starbucks uh, moved the introduction of the pumpkin spice latte into August. And that was certainly met with a lot of hand wringing. And then, but, but one of the spokespeople for the, for either Starbucks or the company that, that helps supply them said, I don't think we'll move it to July. July is summer. You know, like, <laughs> <laughs> a line in the sand there at corporate headquarters. <laughs> right. right. Um, but it, it is, I mean, I do think that there is sort of an interesting thing happening with it because, you know, as, as others have certainly observed, we used to have natural scarcity in food. Like there used to be real seasonality, like foods that were only available certain times of year at the grocery store. Now we've kind of lost that with our industrial food supply, yada, yada, yada. You can get any food at any time. And there is something special about foods that you can only get at certain times of year. And, you know, so, so I do think that like the, the pumpkin spice craze has tapped into that, you know. And I will, like, I don't really like the pumpkin spice lattes, but there are other corporate uh, seasonal food and drink rollouts that I do get excited about. You know, I love Malamars. Um, um, you know, but 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 it, it's like wait, you've when seen is it Malamar also with, season? Yeah, I, they're not available year round. Are they available year round now? They didn't used to be. Well, wait, what, so when uh, are they introduced? I think it's around Easter, isn't it? I don't know. Uh, I didn't know that. You're, you're arguing that the Malamar is a seasonal food. Oh my god! I'm telling that you. Is the, that is the all-time greatest slate pitch crown that you're wearing right now. But it's, it's not just the Malamar. There's also different shapes of Reese's peanut butter cups that come out at different times of year, right? Like the Reese's peanut butter egg, well, the Reese's peanut butter right. or marsh- tree. marshmallow peeps. They grow on their tender vines and they get harvested in late March, early April, and and they get plucked one by one. A field of peeps and blossoms. Oh, it's a beautiful sight. So beautiful. So seasonal. Oh, by the way, um, here it is. Malamars are in season from September through March. All right. <laughs> I've actually heard about this. I think it's because they go stale in humidity or something, and they they, they lack their crispness of their crumbly gram under things. Right. So I guess that is natural seasonality then. Yeah, although who else really cares about, I mean, other things go stale in the summer. They, they can only truly blossom on supermarket shelves at certain times <laughs> of year. All right. Okay. So the appeal, part of the appeal is the seasonality, the sense of, uh, like, false scarcity, right? It creates a sense of like, ooh, now it's fall. I'm going to put on boots and wear a blazer and get a pumpkin spice latte, I guess. But the pumpkin spice latte has become like an unusually freighted signifier in other ways as well. Like somehow pumpkin spice lattes are associated with the the whole shtick slash conversation around basic bitches. And I think it is implied that you are a, a tasteless nobody who's worthy only of contempt from people in the know if you drink pumpkin spice lattes. Like, they've definitely become a signifier of cultural worthlessness. Well, I guess fans, the idea right? would be then, I guess the idea would be that the basic bitch believes the hype, right? The basic bitch buys at face value the fake seasonality of pumpkin spice and is therefore a dupe. Maybe. Maybe she's a dupe. Maybe she Well, just, that, that or, sounds like the kind of question that would be asked by a person who would refer to Donald Trump as a golden phallus. <laughs> 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 year round, he is that year round. He doesn't have a seasonal yeah. debut for it. <laughs> um, but you, I mean, I think I think that part of the reason why you have that that perception is that I mean, there is something inherently, and let's even go move beyond pumpkin spice lattes to pumpkin spice whatevers. Pumpkin spice is in is in itself a sham. I mean, there, there's no pumpkin in most pumpkin spice things. There's mostly corn syrup, and then the things that you would season pumpkin with like um cinnamon nutmeg cloves stuff like that um and then some orange food coloring um and that's usually what pumpkin spice is it's mostly sugar and so it is it's a completely empty proposition it is a food that is billed as something that is seasonal when it can be made at any time it's a food that is billed as having some sort of special connection to fall when it 
really has no pumpkins in it. It only has some of the seasonings that are a com- that accompany some of the popular fall time foods. But I mean, cinnamon and sugar are popular all year round. So it is a giant nothing. Like it, like like, like there's no merit to it. And and so yeah, I mean, I I share your. Uh, you're shocked that it continues to like. I really thought last year was peak, peak pumpkin spice. You know, I really thought, and then now this year it's like I saw. So I was at a party and there was this pumpkin spice liqueur that was the color of orange sherbet, and it like it made me throw up inside my mouth a little just to read the label and look at the color of it. Man, well, I like this though. The notion that that the reason that the pumpkin spice latte is the um, originator and and locus of such contempt is its total falsity. So it sounds like Steve should be on a tear against pumpkin spice. We should briefly note that Starbucks has actually incorporated a dram of pumpkin flesh into into their concoction this year because they were troubled by complainants who suggested that the pumpkinlessness of their pumpkin spice latte was evil. So now tiny bits of pumpkin flotsam are also in this cup, apparently. <laughs> it's the Ryan Adamsization of the pumpkin spice latte. <laughs> yeah, authenticity has been falsely bred back into it with poor results for all. Julia and Dana, could you guys taste the pumpkin in your tasting? No. Not so. really. And that seems completely immaterial to me. How does it become less of an artificial introduction onto the market just because it has a little splash of real pumpkin in it? Yeah, not that. Also, yeah. like, who would ever want to drink pumpkin? Like, do people even put pumpkin in smoothies? <laughs> it's like a disgusting proposition. As Laura Anderson pointed out in a post on Slate, talking about this introduction of real pumpkin and its uh, its stupidity, its ill conceivedness. Uh, pumpkin is like basically pretty gross, and every time you cook it, you usually add a lot of sweetening elements uh, and and you know, pumpkin pie is could be pumpkin pie, but you could also just put some other weird pulp flesh in there and it would be fine. Um, like, like, is there any pumpkin beverage? Like, like, let's say it was all natural. Like, is there any pumpkin, you know, hot spiced pumpkin beverage of the, of the fall that would get you guys excited? That sounds repulsive. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, like apple, you want to, you want to drink warm, like mulled cider. I'd go for mulled cider in the fall. That's delicious. I'll do an eggnog with nutmeg, like on New Year's Day. That's a good drink with some rum. Absolutely. Uh, other things that you'd want to puree. I bet you could like turn parsnips into an interesting smoothie. I'm a real big parsnip fan. I feel like parsnip, <laughs> like the parsnip spice latte, is the slate pitch yeah. of pumpkin spice lattes. But I feel like a par- I'm so, I, parsnip. I'm surprised they don't already have that in Park Slope. Dana, can you report to whether <laughs> on us whether that the food co-op is working on it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but autumn is like when you're like, okay, it's not too hot to turn on the stove. People want to start making like chili and you know roast things, and it's it's all kind of warm up for the big ritual feasts of the dark months of the year. So it sort of makes sense. Like It feels like this is a time when humankind is ripe to be exploited in this manner. And I understand the, the, the drive to have some kind of harvest celebrating food. I mean, this may be a very benighted drink that's very far from the actual product it purports to be celebrating, but you know, that, that sort of is part of every culture forever, right? That, it, that when fall comes, there's this harvest feast of some kind. We have Thanksgiving, but people pick the plants out of the ground and eat them and celebrate the bounty. So in so much as this is some kind of very degraded version of that Simulacrum. impulse, maybe we should celebrate it. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's really our pagan forebears that are, that are in Absolutely. the mix here. Hmm. But wait a second, Dan. Is there, is there a recognizable, in a good, well-wrought pumpkin pie, is there a recognizable quantity of actual pumpkin that is distinctive on the palate or no uh a little i mean this is one of the 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 real the things that i find most amusing is that pumpkin has almost no flavor to begin with you know so like this is just um the idea of pumpkin spice being uh, a, a flavor distinct from the spices you know is like it's just completely i think like like you suggested like a play on really nostalgia so yes, there is a subtle pumpkin flavor in pumpkin pie, but I think that mostly what you're tasting is the spices and then you're experiencing the texture. The mm. texture of mashed up pumpkin is a big part of the pumpkin pie experience. You know, and the and you know, if you're doing it well, hopefully the contrast between the sort of smooth uh mushiness of the of the filling and uh a crisp firm crust and if you can get that contrast going you might have a pretty good pumpkin pie experience Personally, maybe the drink not... needs a crust 
What's that? <laughs> maybe the drink need, needs a crust. Maybe they can make a crust cup the same way they make bread bowls for Ooh, soup. And then you gnaw on the soggy crust at the end. It would be like a cone for the latte. <laughs> I can sort of imagine Turner, that. I think you've got something. Like a warm ice like a warm gelatinous puree served in like a graham cracker cone okay, type Julia, thing. Julia, I'm about to throw up in your mouth, so be careful. <laughs> Wait, Dan, while we have your expertise on hand, I got to ask... Pumpkin pie, better to use with, like, your hand-harvested pumpkin from the food co-op or better to just use canned? I personally would probably use canned. I mean, the idea of turning a pumpkin into something that's soft and mushy enough to, to be the consistency of a pumpkin pie, like, I have not done that myself, for the record, but... It, it, like I'm tired just thinking about that amount of work. The like, stringiness, the stringiness eradication aspect of using real pumpkin and pumpkin pie is daunting. I agree. I mean, totally. I think that's My, the thing. Even classic American Thanksgiving pumpkin pie, I don't know what the percentage is in the American Thanksgiving tables, but I would bet that 70 to 85% of American pumpkin pies are made with canned pumpkins and that that is as it should be. So that even to begin with, the kind of pumpkin spice associations with like fall harvest tables are are very processed. So maybe the pumpkin spice latte is like the most American thing in the world because it oh, is. Oh, there we go. <laughs> in that slate pitch in the house, you did it. You brought Hooray! it home. <laughs> well done. <laughs> and I'm, I am not, by the way, a big pumpkin pie fan. My go-to move with pumpkin pie is to take a slice, put it on a cutting board, chop it up, throw it in a bowl, add a scoop of vanilla ice cream and some cinnamon, and then mush it all up with a spoon till the ice cream is like 50% melted. And it basically becomes like pumpkin pie ice cream. And that's really good. Well, right. Or you could leave it out on a hot stoop and then it's a pumpkin spice latte in you know, <laughs> under eight right. hours. Yeah. <laughs> right. Well, that, that's how they, that's, you know, if you want an artisanal version, that's how you do It's called sun-dried pumpkin spice latte. <laughs> oh, I love it. Danny Pash, it is an absolute pleasure to hear your voice again and have you uh, back near your uh, home base here, your original home base at, uh, at the Slate Culture Gap Fest. Thanks for coming in. You too, guys. Thanks. It was a blast. All right. Well, once again, that was Dan Pashman of the Sporkful Podcast. It's available for download. Uh, I'm No doubt there are going to be wide and varied opinions uh, vituperously held by our listeners about the virtues of pumpkin as a flavor. Uh, come to Facebook.com slash CultureFest and tell us what those are. All right. Well, now is the moment in our program where we endorse. However, before we do that, Julie, we have a little bit of business, correct? We do. Um, we were delighted to see Joel Meyer, the former managing producer of Slate Podcast, when we were in Chicago last week. That's where his new gig is. Uh, but we are now hiring a new managing producer of Slate Podcasts. Uh, the listing for that job is available at slate.com slash jobs. And you should go there and apply for it if you are an awesome audio producer listening to the show who would like to help me and the rest of the Slate and Panoply teams make Slate podcasting uh, even greater and more glorious than it is already. So that's slate.com slash jobs. And then I think, Dana, you had a couple little fact pickups from last week too, right? I do. I have, sadly, two corrections from the live show about two things I said that a listener, thank you, listener, wrote me in to tell me were wrong. Um, one of them is that I specified that Roger Deakins, the great cinematographer, was the cinematographer of Black Mass. I was wrong. He actually shot the other movie I reviewed that same week, Sicario, and I think I just mixed up the two DPs. The DP for Black Mass is actually named Masanobu Takanayagi, and I send him my regrets. The same listener also wrote in to point out that I identified Peter Sarsgaard as one of the actors in the clip we played, which he was. If you were at the live show, we played a clip with Peter Sarsgaard. But because of a production error, a different scene was later substituted in. So if you listen to the podcast, you did not, in fact, hear the voice of Peter Sarsgaard. Is that confusing enough <laughs> as corrections go? I think that's right. If the, if the clip we played seemed a little out of sync last week, it's because we popped the wrong clip into the uh, podcast version of the show. So apologies. That was still a great scene from the movie. Yeah, it was hard to decide because they were both great scenes. Yeah, but he, but he, fi try and find a clip somewhere of Peter Sarsgaard playing a coked up, whacked up. It's pretty great. All right, Steve, now let us endorse. All right. Thanks, Julia. Okay, Dana, what do you got? Yeah, since we spent a whole segment talking about covering albums and different singers singing each other's songs, I thought that I would endorse a great cover version this week of the Oasis song Wonderwall, which was a huge, huge hit from the mid-90s and that I've always thought was just an incredible song, like an amazing standalone song that's sung by anyone is great. Ryan Adams has also covered Wonderwall, actually, on his, his album Love is Hell, and it's, it's, it's quite a nice version. But the one that I wanted to endorse is this beautiful, very short, two-and-a-half-minute cat power version of Wonderwall. I'm not sure what album it's on. She may just sing it live at concerts. 
words, but uh, we'll link to it on the show page. And I feel like she does do an incredible job of finding a different song within that song and just makes you hear it in a whole different way. Mm, Fantastic. Um, Julia, what do you got? I will uh, follow in Dana's footsteps, always a good move, and recommend an oldie but goodie, one of, I I think, my favorite cover album. It's not a cover of a specific album, but it's Johnny Cash's 2000 album, American Three, Solitary Man, uh, which is the series of covers that he did in uh, collaboration with Rick Rubin and features a cover of I Won't Back Down, a terrific Tom Petty song, uh, includes a cover of One, the great U2 song. The Mercy Seat, I See a Darkness. There's just fantastic, fantastic songs on that album. And I think, I mean, Johnny Cash's voice was irreplaceable, but he makes all of this work, some very familiar songs, some less familiar ones, totally new and totally his own. And that album uh, you could listen to on repeat for days. Agree. Nobody can find an essence to a song like, like Johnny Cash. And he had great taste. He just always picked the most interesting. He's covered Depeche Mode and Beck and like music that you wouldn't even think someone of his generation would know. Yeah. And there didn't seem to be shtick in it. And I think, I mean, it's an easier job to make a mix-up combo cover album because you can show your variety by picking uh, such different styles. I mean, I think the degree of difficulty for Ryan Adams of picking one specific album and an album that only came out six months earlier ago or whatever it was. I guess it's a little bit longer than that, but not too much. Um, It's nice to hear some of these songs reinterpreted with distance on them in the way of U2 or Tom Petty songs that are a couple decades old. And now these covers are more than a decade old. So check out American 3, Solitary Man, a wonderful album of covers by Johnny Cash. All right. Well, I just wanted to uh, I, I, I reiterate one of my endorsements from Chicago, which was I'd sort of run out of the energy and, and um, verve by the time I endorsed Little Ghent Farm, which is uh, neighbors of mine who've created something inc- really, really incredible uh, and unique up here. Um, they're doing meat and um, especially the bread is amazing in the baked goods. It's really worth seeking out if you're ever in my part of the world. Send me an email. I'll meet you over there and we'll uh, we'll say hi to Mimi and Richard. Um, but moving on. Um I'm really digging the band Spiritualized, which I didn't know very well until um, my office mate started playing it. They came out of a band that I did know and really like, Spaceman 3. It's just trippy, psychedelic, indie rock, beginning in the 90s. I think they're still still together, but it's freaking brilliant stuff. Uh, check it out. And then one more, very quickly. Dana, I agree that there is this just great tradition of supposedly more serious, more authentically indie artists covering um, pop songs. I think the best example of that is Richard Thompson, the songwriter's songwriter, the guy who created Fairport Convention, um, and then uh, later just had one of the great careers in British folk music covered um, Oops, I Did It Again, the Britney Spears song. It's wonderful. We'll put a link to it. Oh, yeah. You sent that around. I love that cover. Yeah, it's amazing. All right. Uh, thank you, Dana. Thanks, Steve. Thanks, Julia. Thanks, Steve. You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page, slate.com slash culturefest. And you can email us at culturefest at slate.com or drop us a note at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash culturefest. Our producer is Jason DeLeon. Our intern is Lindsay Albrecht. Andy Bowers is the executive producer of Slate Podcasts. The Culture Gap Fest is part of the Panoply Network. Check out the entire roster on itunes.com slash panoply. Our Twitter feed is at Slate Cult Fest. For Julia Turner and Dana Stevens and all the wonderful friends of this program, we were lucky to have this week. I'm Stephen Metcalf. Thank you so much for joining us. We'll see you soon. Not in a house, not in a mouse, I would not eat it.